part two of John Wesley and the Methodists. Um, and I guess this picture, unfortunately, is pretty dark and fuzzy and not very good. Uh, it looked a lot better on the internet. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah, we've got the lights up. <laughs> yeah, over on the side. Um, but John Wesley's life was permanently altered as a result of his Aldersgate experience on May 24, 1738. And this is where we left off last time, that he had gone through, you know, all this effort to make himself pure and holy, and then he began to realize there's something missing and the something missing begin, began to come to him in the year of 1738. Hearing Martin Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans, it revolutionized the character and method of his ministry because it changed Wesley's heart, mind, and soul. And I've reproduced here an excerpt from uh, Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans, which is not a very long... Um, it's a short little thing that you can read. You can find it easily on the internet. Faith is a living, unshakable confidence in God's grace. It is so certain that someone would die a thousand times for it. This kind of trust in and knowledge of God's grace makes a person joyful, confident, and happy with regard to God and all his creatures. This is what the Holy Spirit does by faith. Through faith, a person will do good to everyone without coercion, willingly and happily. He will serve everyone, suffer everything for the love and praise of God who has shown him such grace. It is as impossible to separate works from faith as burning and shining from fire. Therefore, be on guard against your own false ideas and against the chatterers who think they are clever enough to make judgments about faith and good works, but who are, in reality, the biggest fools. Ask God to work faith in you, otherwise you will remain eternally without faith, no matter what you try to do or fabricate. From this point onward, at the age of 35, Wesley viewed his mission in life as one of proclaiming the good news of salvation by faith, which he did whenever a pulpit was offered him. But the congregations of the Church of England soon closed their doors to him because of his enthusiasm. <laughs> so, you know, the polite way in, in the 18th century to call someone a fanatic was to call him enthusiastic. He's got too much enthusiasm. He then went to religious societies trying to inject new spiritual vigor into them, particularly by introducing bands like those of the Moravians. In other words, same-sex small groups within each society that would provide accountability and support to those who pursued a spiritual Christian life. So Wesley and the Methodists of this early era they are, they are still members of the Church of England. They haven't left the church. They don't want to split from it, but they are pursuing a more godly life, and they are wanting to go further in their own personal faith. And so not only are they attending services on Sunday in the church, but then they're meeting together informally in these bands or societies uh, to, you know, read the Bible. You know, today we would call it you know, same as a house church or a small group or a cell group, any of those terms. So, um, you know, when people talk about cell groups or house churches or something like that as some new innovation in the 20th or 21st century, really, they're not. Uh, they've been around, the ideas have been around uh, for quite a while. For such groups, Wesley drew up rules of the band societies in December 1738. Um, Wesley was big on rules, methods, procedure, all of that, and it probably comes out of his Church of England background 
and the fact that he's an Englishman in the eight, living in the 18th century. And society at that time would have been very, um, very, very much in favor of approaching spiritual life in this way. And also, think about it like this. If you are innovating spiritually, but you don't want to break from the established spiritual, uh, religious um, organizations of the day, you don't want to appear to be revolutionary or... or um, uh, treasonous in some sense because the Church of England was allied to the government of England. You know, if you're opposing the church, does that mean you're, you're in opposition to the government? Are you harboring treasonous thoughts? So he's got to approach this in a way that isn't going to get the Methodists completely rejected from English society. So I think the idea of conducting these small groups and these bands in an orderly fashion perhaps might come out of Wesley's desire to not be perceived as some new revolutionary movement. Um, you know, I, I don't really talk much about France, and especially at this, in this time period in France in the 18th century, uh, there is indeed a, a movement towards revolution that is going to happen at the end of the 18th century. And English people are going to be very much attuned to and aware of the revolutionary movements that are taking place in continental Europe. And they don't want to appear revolutionary. We, you know, it's, it's simply, we want to go further in our personal faith journey. Um, and they didn't want to appear, you know, like, oh, we're here to overthrow everything. Now, for a year, Wesley worked through these existing church societies, but resistance increased. And in 1739, George Whitefield, or Whitfield, as he's sometimes called, of course, we remember him. We talked about him. He later became an important preacher of the Great Awakening in both Great Britain and North America, and he began to persuade Wesley to go to the unchurched masses. So Whitfield perhaps was more bold than Wesley was. <clears throat> Wesley gathered converts into societies for continuing fellowship and spiritual growth, and he was asked by a London group to become their leader. And soon other such groups were formed uh, throughout England in the cities of London, Bristol, and later we'll see in the northwest part of England. To avoid the scandal of unworthy members, Wesley published in 1743 rules for the Methodist societies. Um, again, if people are coming into these who are not already Met good members of the Church of England, you know, again, there can be this view that some of these people aren't really good people, and, you know, again, Wesley is hoping to remain in good standing generally in English society. To promote new societies, he became a widely traveled itinerant preacher. But really, this is so different than Church of England. Church of England vicars, pastors, curates did not travel around England preaching in the open air. So for all of his uh, you know, attempts at remaining respectable and acceptable to English society, um, all of what he was doing was beginning to fly in the face of that. And of course, most ordained clergymen did not favor his approach. How would you feel if you're a Church of England minister and someone comes into your parish, an itinerant preacher, maybe you don't even know this person, and he decides to start preaching in a cornfield? Um, you know, and all the people of the village or, you know, in the surrounding area are going out to this other preacher. Um, <laughs> you can see why they wouldn't favor this. Okay, so Wesley is not gaining a lot of traction in the official church circles, but he begins to reach out to dedicated laymen. In other words, people who had not specifically gone to college, gotten a college degree, and had trained for the ministry. Uh, they also became itinerant preachers and helped administer the Methodist societies. 
and many of Wesley's preachers left England and went to the American colonies. But after the American War for Independence, most returned to England. We'll get into it. It's, <laughs> it's, com it's, com it's complicated, we, and, but we will get into it. We definitely will. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, uh, if you think about it, if you've got a bunch of, you know, if you think from the point of view of the American colonists, if you've got a bunch of people who've come over from Great Britain, and maybe, maybe you were born in the New World, but, you know, your grandparents were back in England, maybe your parents had come over on the boat, um, and most of the clergymen in the churches, you, you know, if you lived close enough to go to, to a church, to go to it on any kind of a regular basis. Most of those clergymen had been trained in England, and they had come from England, and, you know, when America decides to separate from Great Britain and be its own nation, these Church of England pastors, Episcopal pastors, they're tied into the church, which is tied into the British government. You know, if the governments are separating, they, yeah, they, you know, and, you know, then there's the whole thing of the loyalists versus the revolutionaries. If, if you are a Church of England pastor and you decide you're not going to go over to side with the colonists and you want to stay faithful to the Church of England and therefore the government of England, you're going to have to go back. Yeah. And so this affected, uh, you know, Episcopal parishes. It, you know, it really, it, it affected, it affected everybody. Yeah, so, um, but later we will talk about the effects of the war on the church in America. It was inevitable that, you know, everything is getting upset and a new government is forming. But in the process of that new government forming, church and state are now separate. And that leads to a whole lot of other, you know, essentially the people left in America who sided with the revolution, who remained in America and became U.S. citizens, ended up forming their own churches, essentially, which later, you know, sometimes much later, came back into communion with the churches from the old world. But, you know, that's, that's an, a story for another time. Um, similar disruptions happened around the time of the uh, uh, Civil War. Civil War brought a lot of disruption to the church in America, and we'll talk a lot about that <clears throat> in a later um, talk. Because the Bishop of London would not ordain some of Wesley's preachers to serve in the United States, Wesley controversially took it upon himself in 1784 to do so. And if you think back for a minute, when we were talking about Church of England ministers going to the New World, um, again, because the church back in England wanted to retain its hold on the American church that was beginning to emerge, even among Church of England slash Episcopal uh, parishes, the bishops and the archbishop back in England did not want to ordain American bishops. And this is, you know, happening while the Methodists are doing their thing. You know, again, the church is saying, we're not, we're not going to go quite so far as to ordain bishops for your new churches. And I think they knew that if they did that, eventually the church in America would really separate. You know, if they have their own bishops, they're going to create their own church hierarchy. So again, just, just like... Uh, you know, the Episcopalians that we talked about in early colonial Virginia, um, they don't have their own bishop, but they're in control of their parishes and they're functioning like an independent church. And the situation of the Methodists is similar. Um, you know, it's like England, if you're not going to go all the way in providing us with a, an ecclesiastical hierarchy, we're going to create one of our own. It, it simply came down to that. 
And Wesley also pointed out that his societies operated independently of any control by the Church of England. So essentially, um, to use an old term, going back to the era of Queen Elizabeth, these people are becoming nonconformists. They are technically part of the Church of England. They're not actively rebelling against it but they're doing a lot of activity that is outside the scope of the, what the church is you know, authorizing. Though Wesley had been ordained an Anglican priest, many other Methodist leaders had not received ordination through the Church of England. And Wesley flouted many regulations of the Church of England concerning parish boundaries. Again, if you're gonna, if you're gonna be an itinerant minister, and travel around the country preaching wherever God leads you, yeah, I mean, you're, you know, you're flying in the face of what the church says ought to be done. Church of England clergy attacked the Methodists in sermons and in print, and at times mobs attacked them. And also keep in mind, a lot of people who are attracted to this Methodist movement they're from the lower classes, the poor, um, the working class people. Um, you know, it's not wealthy. And now, occasionally, there were some, uh, some of the nobility did become Methodist, but, you know, not that many. Most of these people were not socially prominent. Um, they were denounced as teaching strange doctrines, causing religious disturbances, blind fanatics, leading people astray, claiming miraculous gifts, attacking the clergy of the Church of England, and trying to reestablish Catholicism. Again, if you're against the Church of England, that probably means you're secretly a Roman Catholic and you want to restore Roman Catholicism to England. <clears throat> Wesley felt that the church failed to call sinners to repentance, that many of the clergy were corrupt, and that people were perishing in their sins. So Wesley is feeling, you know, he's gone through the experience of the new birth. He's been born again in a significant personal way, and he's believing this really, you know, the gospel isn't really being preached in the Church of England. He believed he was commissioned by God to bring about revival in the church, and no opposition, persecution, or obstacles could prevail against the divine urgency and authority of this commission. The prejudices of Wesley's high church training, you know, he's really, he seems like he's split, he's divided. He wants to, in some sense, stay faithful to the church, but more and more, what he feels God calling him to do is pulling him away from the church. But he did have these strict notions of methods and proprieties of public worship. His views of the apostolic succession and the prerogatives of the priest, even his most cherished convictions, were not allowed to stand in the way. Seeing that he and the few clergy cooperating with him could not do the work that needed to be done, Wesley was led as early as 1739 to approve local preachers. Now again, these preachers are not going so far as to set up their own churches, they're just traveling around England and preaching. They're not administering the sacraments. If you wanted to take Holy Communion, you would have to go to the church to a, an ordained, where an ordained pastor was leading the service. <clears throat> he eval Wesley evaluated and approved men who were not ordained by the Church of England to preach and do pastoral work. So they can't administer the sacraments. They're not baptizing. They're not you know, overseeing Holy Communion. They're not ordained by the church, but they are preaching the gospel. They are leading these small groups. They're leading people into uh, the new birth experience. This expansion of lay preachers was one of the keys to the growth of Methodism. As his, his societies needed houses to worship in, Wesley began to provide chapels, first in Bristol, Bristol at the New Room, uh, then in London, and the first London church was actually located in an old abandoned foundry, a place where metal was melted down and they used it to make 
guns and cannons and stuff like that. And then later, there was an actual building called Wesley's Chapel, which is still in existence. So they began to, um, you know, find places, you know, we can't always meet out in an open field or in people's homes. We need larger buildings to meet in. So this foundry was an early chapel used by Wesley. Wesley began to lay the foundations of what now constitutes the organization of the Methodist Church. And over time, societies, preaching circuits, quarterly meetings, annual conferences, classes, bands, and select societies took shape. And yeah, I think you can see that pretty well. This is uh, an 18th century engraving of a building called the Foundry. Again, this, this was an abandoned building. Uh, it had been used to manufacture cannons for uh, the British Army. Um, <clears throat> but it's an empty building, and nobody really cares too much if they're meeting there, and so they began to meet in this building. And this was actually in a part of London known as Moorfields. And this is a little bit darker, unfortunately, but this is uh, a picture of Wesley's Chapel in London. And again, this building still exists, and you could probably tour it if you wanted to go in there and see. And you notice it doesn't look like a typical church. It doesn't have a steeple and a bell tower. And the architecture, you know, it's kind of garden variety 18th century civic architecture basically is what you could call it doesn't you know they're they're intentionally in in these buildings they're building and and acquiring they don't want to look like a church they are, you know, officially they're not competing with the church of england while providing meeting facilities was important for the growing societies it was equally important to provide leadership Due to the resistance of the Church of England to the growing movement, many converts of the Methodists did not enter the church. They continued meeting in Methodist societies, and eventually the Methodist system became its own denomination of churches. And so Wesley was confronted with the same problems that any growing religious movement would face. Although Wesley never returned to the American colonies, Methodism eventually returned and flourished aided by Methodists and preachers such as George Whitefield. And by 1807, back in Savannah, Georgia, where Wesley had fled uh, in disgrace years earlier, by 1807, a new Methodist society was formed. And Methodist lay preachers rode circuits in both England and America in the 18th and early 19th centuries. So riding a circuit meant that a lay preacher would visit different societies, sometimes separated by many miles from each other. And in frontier America, the arrival of the preacher was an exciting event. Um, in days filled with unrelenting toil in you know, farming or eking out a living in the new world, to have someone from the outside come in to preach the gospel you know, even if you might not personally have been all that inclined towards religion yourself, it was an event that was exciting, and communities looked forward to the arrival of, of the circuit rider or the preacher. And honestly, it is my opinion that if these men had not done these things, America would not have, you know, to whatever extent America has a Christian heritage, I would lay the, the accolades for that largely at the feet of these men who rode through wilderness areas, often in great danger. Uh, you know, there's Native American troops that might, you know, or Indians that would want to come and kill them. Um, probably some were killed in that way. Uh, just, the, just the dangers and the difficulty of living on the frontier and traveling uh, from one city or village to another, uh, very, very difficult. And uh, then, as now, finding suitable meeting places for societies to meet was a challenge. Many Methodist societies were only able to find buildings to meet in that had been abandoned or incurred significant debt to obtain a building to regularly meet in. 
um, and many Methodist groups were challenged to come up with funds. These are not rich people. Um, and providing a salary for a full-time minister was way beyond what they could support. Most Methodist societies were made up of middle and lower class people and many poor. And also, um, Methodists are active socially. They want to give to the poor. So, you know, you've got a collection of people who they may not have much financial means, but not only do they want to support their own Methodist societies, but they want to reach out to the poor as well. In response to the growing need for leadership, Wesley established the annual conference as a way to lead the movement, and the Methodist Church to this day continues to hold conferences in which most of the governance of the church is carried out. As the number of preachers and preaching places increased and doctrinal and administrative matters needed to be discussed, John and Charles Wesley, along with four other clergy and four lay preachers, met for consultation in London in 1744. And this became known as the First Methodist Conference and subsequently the conference, initially led by Wesley as its president, became the ruling body of the Methodist movement. Now, as the societies multiplied, they adopted the elements of an ecclesiastical system. The divide between Wesley and the Church of England widened. The question of division from the Church of England was urged by some of his preachers and societies, but most strenuously opposed by John's brother, Charles. Wesley himself refused to leave the Church of England, believing that Anglicanism, with all her blemishes, is nearer to the scriptural plans than any other in Europe. In 1745, Wesley wrote that he would make any concession which his conscience permitted to live in peace with the clergy. But he could not give up the doctrine of an inward and personal salvation by faith itself. He would not stop preaching, nor dissolve the societies, nor end preaching by lay members. In the same year, in correspondence with a friend, he wrote that he believed it wrong to administer sacraments without having been ordained by a bishop. But in 1746, Wesley read Lord King's account of the primitive church, or in other words, the church as we see it in the New Testament, uh, in the book of Acts especially, and he became convinced that apostolic succession could be transmitted through not only bishops, but also presbyters, or in other words, priests or elders. In other words, you don't need a bishop to ordain someone to the priesthood. Another priest could do it as well. He wrote that he was a spiritual episkopos, Greek for bishop or overseer, as much as many men in England. Although he believed in apostolic succession, he also once called the idea of uninterrupted succession a fable. Reading Edward Stillingfleet's Irenicon led him to decide that ordination and holy orders could be valid when performed by a presbyter or an elder rather than a bishop. Increasingly strained, Wesley's formal relationship with the Church of England became even more distant when he resigned his Oxford Fellowship in 1744. Now, what about what's going on in the colonies? North America, primarily America, uh, what would become the United States and Canada. So in the late 1760s, uh, two Methodist lay preachers emigrated to America and formed societies. Philip Embury began a society in New York at the instigation of fellow Irish Methodist Barbara Heck. Soon, Captain Thomas Webb from the British Army aided him, and it was very unusual from someone who was in the Army, an Army officer, to become a Methodist, but he had. He formed a society in Philadelphia and rode a circuit along the east coast of America. Reverend Lawrence Coughlin, uh, an actual ordained minister who was a Methodist, arrived in Newfoundland, Canada in 1766, and opened a school in the province. 
1770, two authorized Methodist preachers, Richard Boardman and Joseph Pilmore, arrived from Britain. So there were authorized and unauthorized <laughs> uh, Methodist preachers. You know, honestly, there were some people who just said, I'm a Methodist preacher, and just kind of, you know, went forth. <clears throat> Others sought the authorization of the formal Methodist structure as it was at that time. And Wesley began authorizing, you know, again, he wouldn't say he was ordaining these men. He, was, he would simply say, I have authorized, I've examined this certain man. He leads a holy and godly life. He is uh, knowledgeable in the scriptures. I authorize him to preach. So, uh, you know, there are kind of two kinds of Methodist preachers, the official ones and the unofficial ones. Um, but initially, there was no organized mission to America, simply individual Methodist lay ministers who felt called to go to the colonies. But in the years leading up to the War for Independence from Britain, the number of Methodist missionaries increased in America. A very important Methodist um, minister, uh, very important for American history, Francis Asbury, born in 1745 in England and died in 1816 in America, was one of the first two bishops of the Methodist Episcopal Church in the United States. So later on, after, you know, after and because of the War for Independence, you know, the church has split and be, because of the political split. And so there becomes a Methodist, but they use the term Episcopal because they are retaining this idea of bishops. So they're saying, we are Methodists, we are evangelicals, we believe in the new birth, we are preaching the gospel, yet we are retaining bishops as part of our foundational church structure. So later on, again, because of the War for Independence, the Methodists broke off in, in America, broke from uh, Britain, and formed their own church, and they called it the Methodist Episcopal Church. Now, when Asbury first came to America, that did not exist, but he helped pave the way for it. During Asbury's 45 years in the colonies and then the newly independent United States, he devoted his life to ministry, traveling on horseback and by carriage thousands of miles to those living on the frontier. And that is a rather dark <laughs> 18th century uh, portrait of Francis Asbury as an, as an older man. Asbury did not come from a wealthy, prominent family. He was born in a village close to the city of Birmingham in the northwest of England, an industrial and mining center. He came from the working class. Asbury's mother became a Methodist when Francis was a boy. At this time, in this part of England known as the West Midlands, there was a great deal of anti-Methodist feeling. During Asbury's childhood, the West Midlands was undergoing massive changes as the Industrial Revolution swept through the area. So, you know, we've talked about the Scientific Revolution, we've talked about the Enlightenment and the Intellectual Revolution. We haven't really talked about the Industrial Revolution because that really, you know, moves us far afield from church history. But I, I encourage you, if you'd like a homework assignment, Look up the Industrial Revolution on the internet and you can read about it. It radically changed Europe and England and America. Uh, waves of workers migrated into the area attracted by jobs in the growing factories and workshops in Birmingham and the mining regions. And the Asburys lived in a cottage tied to a public house or a pub on a main route between the mines and the factories. And of course, what goes on in a pub? They would have been aware of the drinking, gambling, poverty, and poor behavior prevalent in the area. So Francis Asbury is growing up in a very rough place. <clears throat> and his parents are not wealthy. He had a limited formal education, and he left school at, at about the age of 12. And he started working uh, a job. Uh, he, he, oh, he worked, I believe he worked for a blacksmith at one point. Um, 
But due to his mother's Methodist influence, he met more Methodists, and he attended society meetings regularly with other young men. But despite his limited education, Asbury became a Methodist minister and began riding circuits in England. And at the age of 22, uh, Wesley certified him or authorized him as a traveling lay preacher. <clears throat> and typically, such positions were held by young unmarried men known as exhorters. You know, if you're moving around a lot, you really can't have a family. Uh, Asbury never married. A lot of these people never married. They could never have a family because they were constantly traveling uh, to preach the gospel. They truly made a lot of sacrifices. Now, in 1771, and this is shortly before the American War for Independence, Asbury volunteered to travel to British North America. His first sermon in the colonies took place with the Methodist congregation in Woodrow, Staten Island, New York. And within the first 17 days of being in the colonies, Asbury preached in both Philadelphia and New York. During the first year, he served as Wesley's assistant in North America and preached in 25 different settlements. When the American War for Independence broke out in 1775, Asbury and another Methodist minister uh, named James Dempster were the only British Methodist lay ministers to remain in America. And again, if you're tied into the Church of England, that means you're tied into the government of England, and England and America are splitting. So you've got to pick a side. Now, Asbury and James Dempster did not pick a side. They stayed in America, but they had to go into hiding through the war. And with the legal ties between Britain and America being severed, Asbury tried to keep the embryonic Methodist congregations neutral, a very difficult task. He would not endorse either Great Britain or the newly formed US government and urged all his followers to do the same. And this request placed almost all of his followers, especially those living in Maryland, in a very difficult position. He did a lot of work in Maryland. <clears throat> but Maryland had enacted a law requiring all citizens to take an oath of allegiance to the newly formed American Congress. Asbury left Maryland to go to Delaware, where there was no such oath of allegiance required. Now, in 1780, Asbury met the freedman, Henry, Black Henry Hosier, um, a meeting that Asbury believed was providentially arranged. Uh, so this was a former enslaved person, black um, man, who had gained his freedom and had moved north. And Hosier served as his driver and guide, and though illiterate, memorized long passages of the Bible as Asbury read them aloud during their travels. And Hosier eventually became a famous preacher in his own right, and he was the first African-American to preach directly to a white congregation in the United States. In the fall of 1800, Asbury attended one of the events of the revival of 1800 as he traveled from Kentucky into Tennessee. The combined Presbyterian and Methodist communion observance made a deep impression on Asbury. It was one of the first multi-day camp meetings, which included attendees camping on the grounds or sleeping in their wagons around the meeting house. For Asbury, it showed the importance of religious revival and camp meetings, which would later become a staple of 19th century frontier and rural American Methodism. In 1784, John Wesley named Asbury and Thomas Koch as superintendents of the work in the United States. So despite the upheavals that the war brought, there was still a connection uh, between Methodists in the United States and Methodists in Britain. The Christmas Conference that year marked the beginning of the Methodist Episcopal Church of the United States, and it was during this conference that Asbury was ordained by Koch. Uh, so here's a man who's not being ordained in the Church of England or any other church except by another Methodist uh, preacher. So in, in essence, they're beginning to establish their own religious hierarchy. 
The Methodist Church in America retained something of its Anglican roots in that the office of bishops was retained, but it also had the more democratic emphasis on employing lay ministers and workers. Like Wesley, Asbury preached anywhere and everywhere. Courthouses, public houses, tobacco houses, fields, public squares, wherever a crowd assembled to hear him. For the remainder of his life, he rode an average of 6,000 miles each year, preaching virtually every day and conducting meetings and conferences. Under his direction, the church grew from 1,200 to 214,000 members and 700 ordained preachers. Among the men he ordained was Richard Allen in Philadelphia, the first black Methodist minister in the United States who later founded the African Methodist Episcopal, or otherwise known as AME Church, the first independent black denomination in the country. Another African-American was Daniel Coker, who emigrated to Sierra Leone in 1820 and became the first Methodist minister there from the West. For the next 32 years, Asbury led all the Methodists in America. But his leadership did not go unchallenged. His idea for a ruling council was opposed by other prominent American Methodists, William McHendry, Jesse Lee, and James O'Kelly. And Jesse Lee wrote a history of the Methodist movement in America, which you can read for free online. Um, I read some of it. It's kind of hard reading because it's 18th century English, but you can read it, and it's very interesting. Eventually, based on advice by Koch, he established in 1792 a general conference to which delegates could be sent. Again, a very democratic approach to church governance, and it was a way of building broader support. Now, I'm going to conclude today by um, talking about certain Methodist distinctives. In addition to preaching um, the new birth and, and really creating evangelicalism, that's essentially what the Methodists were doing, um, and in addition to the extensive use of lay people or non-ordained members to do the work of the ministry, the Methodist movement had these distinct features that made it different than other Christian churches or religious movements. Support for women preachers. Oh, that's a radical step. Women were active in Methodism and were encouraged to lead classes. In 1761, Wesley informally allowed Sarah Crosby, one of his converts and a class leader, to preach. On an occasion where over 200 people attended a class that she was meant to teach, Crosby felt as though she could not fulfill her duties as a class leader, given the large crowd, and decided to preach instead. In the summer of 1771, a woman by the name of Mary Bozanquit wrote to John Wesley to defend hers and Sarah Crosby's work in preaching and leading classes at her orphanage known as Cross Hall. Bozanquit's letter is considered to be the first full defense of women's preaching in Methodism. Her argument was that women should be able to preach when they experienced what she called an extraordinary call or when given permission from God. Wesley accepted Bozanquit's argument and formally began to allow women to preach in Methodism in 1771. But at that time, they did not end up ordaining women uh, as pastors. Uh, that would come later. Number two, opposition to the slave trade and the practice of enslavement of human beings. Uh, Methodists in both uh, Great Britain and America were strongly anti-slavery. Later in his ministry, Wesley moved on to the side of abolitionism, complete abolishment of slave trade and freeing slaves and he spoke out and wrote against the slave trade. He, de he denounced it as the sum of all villainies and detailed its abuses. He addressed the slave trade in a work titled Thoughts Upon Slavery in 1774. He wrote, liberty is the right of every human creature. As soon as he breathes the vital air and no human law 
can deprive him of that right which he derives from the law of nature. Wesley was a mentor to William Wilberforce, who was also influential in the abolition of slavery in the British Empire. And if you haven't come over to our house and watched the movie Amazing Grace with Greg, I urge you to do so. Greg will be more than happy to view the movie with you. He's viewed it many times. It is the story of how Wilberforce helped bring about the end of slavery in uh, Great Britain. Uh, uh, he was a very influential uh, member of parliament and was instrumental in getting the laws changed. Another distinctive is the belief in entire sanctification or Christian perfection. Now, Wesley reinterpreted the idea of Christian perfection as found in church tradition by interpreting it through a, a Protestant lens that understood sanctification in light of justification by grace through faith, working by love. So in other words, you know, both in Roman Catholic theology and Eastern Orthodox theology, there is, a tire, there is an idea of Christian perfection or sanctification. We would probably be more comfortable with the term sanctification. A lot of us might shy away from, you know, I'm not going to use the word perfection. That just sounds like it's going too far. But Wesley had a different interpretation. He believed that regeneration, or the new birth, which occurred simultaneously with justification, was the beginning of sanctification, which I think most of us would agree with. From his reading of Romans 6 and 1 John 3, 9, Wesley concluded that a consequence of the new, new birth was power over sin. In a sermon titled Christian Perfection, Wesley preached that a Christian is so far perfect as not to commit sin. But Wesley defined sin or sins as voluntary sins, or in other words, deliberate. Nothing is sin, strictly speaking, but a voluntary transgression of a known law of God. Therefore, every voluntary breach of the law of love is sin and nothing else if we speak properly. To strain the matter farther is only to make way for Calvinism. Remember, Wesley is an Arminian. There may be 10,000 wandering thoughts and forgetful intervals without any breach of love, though not without transgressing the Adamic law. But Calvinists would fain confound these together. Let love fill your heart, and it is enough. Wesleyan and Methodist ideas about Christian perfection or entire sanctification would later come to influence the holiness Pentecostal movement as it began to emerge in America towards the end of the 19th century, which we will talk about later. Um, but it's this idea that, you know, if you commit a sin unknowingly, it's not really a sin. You didn't intend to do it. it but if you deliberately intend to transgress the law of God, that is a sin. But Wesley believed that you could get to a point where, although you might always make mistakes and, you know, would continue to maybe do things wrong that you didn't even realize were wrong at the time, you could get to a point where you would be so filled with the love of God and controlled by the Holy Spirit that you would no longer voluntarily sin. Another distinctive of the Methodist movement, um, something that grew out of Methodism, was the American temperance movement, which would be the outlawing and abolition of the production, sale, and consumption of alcohol. So in the late 18th and early 19th century, various factors contributed to an epidemic of alcoholism that went hand in hand with spousal abuse, domestic violence, family neglect, and chronic unemployment. And if you do watch the movie Amazing Grace, it does touch upon this, that within uh, Britain at the time that Wesley and Wilberforce lived, um, just the lower classes especially were plagued with alcoholism. And it, it was a very serious problem. 
So Americans who used to drink lightly alcoholic beverage like cider from the crack of dawn to the crack of dawn began ingesting far more alcohol as they drank more of strong, cheap beverages like rum in the colonial period and whiskey in the post-revolutionary period. So in both Britain and America during this time period, alcoholism is um, uh, a big social problem. Popular pressure for cheap and plentiful alcohol led to relaxed ordinances on alcohol sales. And keep in mind, you know, there's an economic aspect to it, and especially with rum, where was rum manufactured? It was manufactured in the West Indies, in the Caribbean. And where was there a lot of slavery going on? So th the production of rum was tied in with enslavement. Um, so there were a lot of reasons for people like the Methodists to be concerned about this. And both growing, you know, a growing concern, both Protestants and Catholics became concerned with the larger social effects of alcoholism in their communities. And the Methodists were instrumental in forming temperance societies to combat the social ills of alcoholism. They believe that despite the supposed economic benefits of liquor traffic, such as job creation and taxes, the harm that it caused society through its contribution to murder, gambling, prostitution, crime, and political corruption outweighed its economic benefits. And unfortunately, my reference there, <laughs> it got uh, truncated. One aspect of the temperance movement concerned the abundance and quality of drinking water. Many Americans had little to no access to pure drinking water, and so they drank alcohol instead. Temperance activists realized that work needed to be done to improve public water and sanitation systems, and wealthy patrons began to donate funds to build public pure water drinking fountains to enable anyone access to pure drinking water. And I'm ending here, and this might seem like a trivial thing. We take it for granted that when we turn on the tap, uh, the water that comes out of it is fit to drink, touch, use for bathing, showering, you know, preparing food, and all of it. Um, of course, this was not always the case. And, you know, we continue to have problems with our water systems today, as we know. But we have Methodists in the United States <laughs> to thank for much of the push towards uh, developing you know, sanitary and, and public sewage systems and pure water uh, sanitation systems. Um, I don't know if, if it would have come about as readily if the Methodists hadn't pushed it. Um, later on, and you know, we'll talk about this uh, later as well, it led to um, prohibition in the early 20th century, which as we know from history, was not a very successful movement. Anyway, that ends this portion. I, I'm going to talk more about some other Methodists in later talks. We really haven't talked about Charles Wesley. Uh, there's just too much material to cover, so we'll uh, most likely be doing an, an, another segment on Methodists focusing on the work of Charles Wesley um, and also touch upon music as a part of... Um, uh, the Reformation and the other religious movements in Europe and America of this time period because church music is an extremely important aspect of the church. Um, so I kind of ran long, don't really have time for questions. Um, you know, if you have any questions or want some references to stuff you can read and learn more about the early Methodists, I'll be glad to share those with you. Thanks. <laughs>